Hey there, and welcome to episode 4.16 of my podcast, What Now with Simo. This is also the finale of season 4. Grief is a process that can take a very long time. You may have acute moments when you feel it years afterward. And also grief follows its own timetable that isn't linear. It's not predictable. I've lost several important people in my life. Some not to death, but life, directions and circumstances. But earlier this year, I lost someone very concretely, my mother, in February. Over time, I noticed the sorrow growing ever stronger. It doesn't simply hit you and then start subsiding. Like in many stories, it's unfortunately shown to work that way, which can make some people feel bad that they are not healing like that, that there are new and sometimes way, way stronger waves when all the things that have forever changed hit you when you realize all the things that are no longer possible because the person is no longer there. One of the great sorrows of my life will be that I never got to experience in the lifetime of both my parents when my mom was still alive, I mean, being able to invite them to an event where my music would have been performed, a premiere maybe, maybe an Iceland symphony or a piece or pieces from it, or maybe something else. But now that's never going to be possible because she's no longer there. My own progress in life has followed its own timetable also. I've never been a lazy person. Things take as long as they take. And just because someone hasn't started something by the time they're 30 or 50 or whatever age we're talking about, it doesn't mean that they can't. For me, getting seriously into the idea of making music happened only in my 30s. When I grew up, the circumstances simply didn't exist where I could have found that path before. Music has always meant a great deal to me, but I'm talking about the path of starting to learn how to do it. So much depends on chance. I grew up in this uh, small town that was a great place to grow up until my teens when things got more difficult, but anyway, I'm not going to go into this uh, childhood stuff. I have processed all that. I've been thinking recently about the difference between people who are driven to do art, to be creative and to create, to really find their own voice and do something that hasn't been done yet. And then, on the other hand, people who do it as a kind of hobby or a way to pass time. 
or because it's considered a civilized thing to do among your family or extended family or people you know. Or maybe there's a music school or an art school nearby. And I've known of many cases where people have gone to these places without ever having the drive to dedicate themselves to it. There's a difference. Feeling an actual need, as in you can't avoid doing it, and being driven to create something that doesn't yet exist, yet you feel you need to find it, and because it doesn't exist, you need to create it. That's a very different thing. I don't think that David Lynch could ever have done it as a hobby, as something to just pass the time. It's his life, and that's his life's work. But also about this thing of finding that nowhere does something that you yearn for exist yet, like certain emotions in music that you just can't find anywhere. For me, that has been an important motivation I've heard fragments of things that have sparked something. Here I think it's important to point out that I'm not talking about taking someone's idea and building on it. An idea can spark something, but it doesn't mean that you need to do what they were doing only expanding it and uh, taking it forward. I think that my inspirations in life, while many of them come in some way in little glimpses through art, works of art and entertainment, still they can ultimately be traced back to real life. Things that can be experienced, feelings that are connected to certain places or certain situations you can be in. I feel ultimately that's so much richer than whatever could be achieved by simply copying someone's style or the subject matter, what the work is about, if it's a story for example. My championship and sharing in a dedicated way, the works of certain people and interviews with them and so on may have led at least some other people to assume that my intention is to do something like they've done. And this is actually the furthest thing from the truth because I'm very aware of the fact that that would be a waste of my own life and the only things I can give to the world that are of lasting value because those are things that are unique to me, just as David Lynch has done things that come from deep within himself, from his own passions, and the same with Ray Bradbury and all the people I admire, Pierre Estev, Vangelis, numerous others. So the last thing I would do is try to do something that's kind of like Twin Peaks, or to try to do a kind of fan fiction version even if in professional context. So, in fact, the last thing anyone should expect from me is 
something that's just like Lynch. I don't want anything a little or a lot like the works of Lynch, Bradbury or the others. I want the real thing. That's a waste of anyone's unique talents and the unique things they could give of themselves. They're really special things. If they spend more time reaching into themselves and finding those things. I have found that it takes a lot of work. Maybe for others it comes much more easily. There's no one answer to how it happens. I've sometimes been feeling first signs of this, but more recently it became a very definitive feeling and realization even. At first I wasn't sure what's going on. What is this? Why is almost nothing, almost nothing created by others in any field of art giving me anything anymore? I asked myself, is this momentary? Am I just low on energy? Am I going through some kind of transition? Or even, is this a sign to worry about? But I realized that I had come along on that path of starting and continuing and then keeping on creating and uh, building on those creations of my own. I had come far enough along that because I had managed to discover those special places that no one has yet inhabited or taken in that direction or mood or my own work had become of primary importance. Well, that may sound confusing. Wasn't it before this point? And uh, is what I'm talking about a good thing? Well, the thing is, when I was younger, I was receiving and receiving what others had done. I lived and breathed things that others had created in all these fields of art, TV, films, music, stories, poems. So I was taking things in I wasn't yet putting almost anything out except a drawing or a very short piece of writing for school or something like that from time to time. But I've spent many years on what I've been calling accurately as my journey through the history of music through its recorded forms. Because, you know, music started being able to be recorded only in the late 19th century so there were no audio recordings of music before that point, ever, anywhere, in the history of Earth. But, of course, then the recordings have covered music from all eras, all times, and all types of music as well. But I've been doing this so intensively that I have reached the point with numerous composers and performing musicians where their work simply stopped giving me anything anymore. And uh, this isn't an arrogant statement. Instead, it's a statement about how you don't need to spend the rest of your life listening to the same things over and over again. 
although this is what many people and places in this world have come to believe, but that kind of repetition, even suggested by the word repertoire, which to me has always been horrifying, the idea that there's a repertoire, things you need to keep going through over and over until your dying day. Literally, you are never supposed to be allowed to say that I have now actually heard enough recordings and performances of Beethoven symphonies or his string quartets or of Wagner operas or any type of music. That's something that, as incredible as this may sound to future generations, which may have much more evolved views about all this, I mean healthier when I say evolved, more balanced and more embracing of life in all its different forms. If you say this out loud, that I just don't feel any need to listen anymore to Beethoven or Bob Dylan or any musical creator that we could list, people will look at you like you're dumb or like you don't understand a basic truth. The basic truth is supposed to be that, no, you always keep getting new things out of this. It's just a matter of the circumstances. And by the way, let me add here that, in fact, I have not tired of Bob Dylan forever, and I haven't tired of Beethoven maybe forever, although right now I am completely wiped out on Beethoven. So right now, even if I tried, I couldn't get anything out of listening to his music. But this is taboo, you are not supposed to say this. And it's actually become more and more taboo to say these kinds of things. But really, I think that it's a dystopian vision for the future if we imagine children dutifully going through all of Beethoven's works, or Mozart's, Schubert's, Anton Bruckner, then the 20th century composers, and, you know, all the names. Uh, I'm just giving some most known names. But it's a dystopian vision. If we imagine children just having to plow through these things that were created centuries ago in many cases by people who may simply not have lived yet in a world that would have allowed them to create in such a way that it would now still speak to young hearts and souls and minds, to young people, children. And then it's supposed to be a never-ending process of just listening over and over from the youngest possible age to the day you die. When your life is actually over, you are supposed to listen endlessly and say to others that you are getting new things out of these things. You know, after listening to 50 recordings of Beethoven's some symphony, for example. And you know, I don't have anything against him. I'm just saying that there are actually limits to what you can get from someone's creations. And if you don't recognize those limits, anyway, I think I just cut my own sentence off here.
But that vision, the children having to do this with all the recognized, accepted, great composers, and to really keep doing it, to use an incredible amount of their lives trying to appreciate and understand or get something out of this music. That's a dystopian vision. It's not one where children are allowed to find the things that they know to be fresh, that give them something to go on. I think adults make a mistake when they assume that children just don't know what's good for them, that they need to be disciplined and guided into doing certain things. But in this vision, in any case, there is no freedom, really. The kids are not allowed to discover their own ways. If we've already decided that, indeed, Beethoven will be immortal, that people 1,000 years from now will be listening to the symphonies over and over, I think that's not only very unlikely, yes, there will certainly be people who will want to do that, but by then, many new composers will have created a lot of new music that speaks more to people now, in the future, or perhaps for all times. I don't think that you can say of the accepted classical greats that their music will speak for all times. Indeed, there's so much that's depressing about this vision that people would only be listening to these and everyone is supposed to recognize them as the greatest and never say that I don't want to listen to this anymore. I want to do something fresh now. Speaking of outgrowing things, either permanently or for a time, it now seems very strange to me to consider that in the earliest seasons of this podcast, I sometimes uh, talked about superheroes. When I was younger, I read these comics in a very dedicated way, to the extent that I could tell to this day who wrote some story or drew it or even inked it. But it seems strange to me now because superheroes haven't mattered at all to me for a very, very long time. Except with one exception. And this is why I think I did talk about them a little bit, mentioned them at least once or twice. Several years ago, I watched uh, several of the Marvel movies in particular with someone younger than me, and it was enjoyable. That experience was enjoyable because of that specific context and because of my own background as someone who had experienced them, those stories and characters, when I was actually much younger than the person I was watching with was at that time. So that experience was enjoyable to me. I was enjoying the experience of watching them in that company and seeing a younger person react to things that were very familiar to me from my own past. It's unlikely I'll be talking about superheroes anymore at this point. I'm just now leaving them in the past. There's so many more compelling and fascinating things to talk about for me. 
in one of the earlier seasons, I talked a little bit about an artist who worked in comics called Alexander Toth, and I said something that I now have to take back because I've seen more from those times, and I realized that what I said based on too small a sample just wasn't true. I had seen an early Alex Toth story that he did for DC Comics, which wasn't actually called DC Comics at the time. The name only started being used widely later. But I mentioned in that earlier episode that that story featured the most interesting layouts I had ever seen in any comics up to that point being published by DC and Marvel, I mean. But that seems to have been just a single exception. Because after that, something strange happened. His layouts got very uninteresting, and just like anyone else's, almost. I have a good idea, a good educated guess about what happened. I believe that the editors he was working for, and the publishers at the company, told him not to do layouts like that anymore. This has happened also later in comics history, where someone has been doing innovative, interesting layouts, and they've been told to stop doing those weird layouts. They were called weird, whereas they were, of course, a huge step into the future, or would have been if they had been allowed to become more of an inspiration for others as well. But yeah, so then he seems to have spent several decades doing uninteresting layouts until one day he eventually did some really interesting layouts again for a company called Warren Publishing, who were publishing magazine-sized horror comics at the time. Then you could see something really eye-grabbing from Alex Toth again. But I shake my head when I think of that likelihood of how it may have happened that he may have been ready to take comics forward by huge leaps already decades earlier. But he wasn't allowed to do that because it was too different. You know, of course, the same thing happens over and over in the world of art. Someone does something that people think is bad. It's not doing it right if it's done very differently. People have had reactions like this to the work of Bob Dylan, David Lynch, of course. His 1992 film Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me was largely condemned as just bad at the time. Here I'm going to say something about the director I don't enjoy. Quentin Tarantino said at the time that Lynch had disappeared so far up his own <clears throat> that uh, he had no interest in watching any more Lynch films. That's what Quentin Tarantino said. But now, these days, and especially in the light of Twin Peaks Season 3, it fits in effortlessly. 
it's like a piece of the same very thing. So what he was doing in the early 90s, David Lynch with this film, was timeless and forward-thinking in a way that other works from that time weren't. You can still look at that film and listen to it and experience it, and uh, it hasn't aged the same way as many other films from those times. That's because he had a sense for lasting creative choices that have made for works that don't age except in the good way, often described as being like fine wine aging. going to refer to something again that I've pointed out in many past episodes. A lot of what makes David Lynch's work, his films, so lasting is something that may even have come about largely as simply a matter of him avoiding doing things that he himself doesn't enjoy, that he doesn't like, uses of language, creative styles that are a fad for a time, but then fade away and uh, come to seem outdated. Everything like that. And uh, of course, references. If you make references to cultural things, and the more you make them in your work, the more you limit the work's longevity, how long it can speak to people in the future as well. Of course, not everyone is aiming for long-lasting works, and if so, then there's not much harm done by making references to different things. But it does have that limiting consequence for later audiences, and also audiences around the world, I would point out, people who don't know those cultural things. But whether that happened that way for David Lynch's films or through a conscious choice not to include those for other artistic reasons. That's the effect of that happening, leaving out those things that would date a work. An interesting thing happens perspective-wise to these works, first in the present and then as time passes. When Twin Peaks Season 1 first came out, many people found it weird. They found it strange, the way it was telling the story and exploring, sharing that world. But the very same things that made people feel like this isn't doing things the way I could feel comfortable with, those were the very qualities that made it long-lasting work and that make it now rise above other works from those times. So this is something a creative artist needs to do if they are not only interested in addressing the immediate audience in the near future, to take steps that may make the work seem difficult to get into for some people in the present or near future, and trust that 
those things will come to be appreciated exactly because they were and are something different than what you see elsewhere. There's another point about this that I may have mentioned in an earlier episode, but in case not, Philip Glass has said that you actually can't address the present with any work you do, because by the time you finish your work, that moment has already passed. So all you can do, or all that it makes sense to do, is to address the future. Otherwise, your work will be outdated the moment it comes out talking to an audience that is no longer there because we all move forward in time and in our own lives. That's why, you know, I don't think that it's ideal to aim for what's called topical because the topic can so often be something that's here now, gone tomorrow. I shouldn't say it's not a good idea. It can be a good idea for people with different goals and ideals um, compared to what I'm aiming for and feel compelled to do actually it's it's not really a choice I feel this is my life's work I would be failing to live up to that sense of responsibility to make the right choices for myself and for my work if I followed rules that it doesn't make any sense for me to follow Now there's these same kinds of thinking about music, that you are supposed to do things according to these theoretical frameworks that were created for particular times, particular circumstances, and particular types of music by particular composers. But it would be really completely missing the point to try to do what somebody did 200 years in the past, especially if following all the same rules You just can't do anything new if you do that. But maybe it's very difficult to see, unless this is something you've been sensing yourself for a long time in your life, maybe it's difficult for people to see that it's genuinely possible to do a whole new thing with a scene in a TV series or film or a play where what happens doesn't follow any structure seen before, it doesn't do another version of the same old moment. There are these very, very often repeated scenes that many screenwriting teachers actually try to encourage you to do, where the scene is making the very same point in the very same tempo and very same emotional mixes as endless other scenes before. You know, these teachers can talk of things like the all is lost moment, which you see pretty much in every superhero film, for example. Just before the final victory, there's supposed to be an all is lost moment. 
And I hate that phrase, all is lost now, because I just don't want to experience that scene anymore. I know whenever it happens that they are now doing it consciously, because they believe there must be an all is lost moment. And of course, often it happens by killing a character people like, and, uh, you know, very calculatingly wringing some tears from the audience who hasn't yet gotten tired of this manipulation. What I'm saying is, is that there are many scenes in David Lynch's work, for example, once again, where what the scene does doesn't follow any pattern and its rhythm is completely its own. It's not trying to recreate a moment that can be reduced to a little phrase like that. You know, characters can feel like they are genuinely in that environment, having their own inner lives. And you know, nobody goes to a situation, at least nobody sane, goes into a situation thinking, oh, now I'm going to experience my all is lost moment. And so, uh, okay, I will, you know, be plunging into grief in a moment or, you know, and nobody thinks that, oh, I have just experienced an inciting incident, another of the uh, fancy phrases used in connection with screenplays. I wish that more writers and creators in other fields tried to get away from those types of formula scenes, instead trying to find the things that come uniquely from that creation, from that work. That's what David Lynch is talking about when he says that the idea tells you everything. It means that you can unfold things from that idea and listen to what feels right instead of trying to make it match some ready-made pattern for storytelling. But now I think it's time to wrap up this episode and this season and for anyone interested, the last 12 minutes or so of this episode will include the soundtrack, including the spoken parts from my Lake presentation video for my first book of poetry, Land of Youth and Beauty, Early Poems. You can find this video on YouTube, but I also felt that it's somehow good to end this episode with that. So... Farewell for now, and I hope to meet you again next season. Bye for now, and take care.
Land of Youth and Beauty, Early Poems by Simon Sakori Alderman. Dedicated to my dear mother, now in eternity, and all who one way or another create beauty and lyricism in this world. Contents On an evening stroll, a child's chant, a day and a night ago, the days of Seal Park Bay. Feeling enfolded, out in the bayou, Melancholia is the first, the night is long, twelve donuts have I, to go where the wind blows. A time of going away, loneliness has a hollow heart. I'll go to sleep now, it was always the last one. Things coexist. What happened to you? I garden. Rumors vary. She said, I said. Secret joys and cunning ploys. What was that? Prologue. does one contemplate a final certainty? With a heaviness of heart, of course. How can you live with a heavy heart? We dream, the mind forgets. What can we do? Let go, share the fire, even embers and enlightened warmth. How much longer? Long enough. This night has already gone on forever, my friend. You dream within a dream. See the blue flame in the endless dark, once we lived life among the unwanted ones. In the world of the quick, I remember, of love and laughter, so fragile, over so quickly. One more story. Very well. This happened when the world was young and love could never die, when the skies flamed every morning and it rained every night. On an evening stroll, hoping to catch a glimpse of a Bradbury summer night, asking myself in dismay, where can you go in the city to feel the earth turn and the sun raise, raise? Give me a motorcycle to ride down baking roads, give me a theater in whose wings to crash at night. I may be a stranger, I may be a stranger, born of a wild summer dream.
I wade through autumn leaves from place to place on errands hollow, chill on my heart. I recall in the market your kind grace, your warm smile, uncertainty on my part. Foolishness has many names, we all know, and the sands run no slower for the fool. Save in the magic circle where can grow what all the world wants, what does all souls rule. We never knew the where or when or how the trickster fate would sudden draw us near. We only had our eyes unspoken vow and tangled thoughts of eerie sudden fear. Would vanish, blow away like windswept smoke, and leave behind a life indifferent grey. The Golden Key. I wish I had known you. Autumn, it's autumn, and the time has come to speak of endings and beginnings. Oshin and Niav. Years passed, no tears fell, no death never reached the golden shores they trod. Here dwelled upon mortal and god, Oshin of flesh, Niav or the Fae, till reason's light brought disarray, broke through imagination's shell. A marionette's dream, still aching. Let me tell you, O oh fellow marionettes, the truth. Some of us have our strings cut in the first act. Some of us take the GS for our hobbling gates and lopsided smiles. The sun returned. The sun drum. This is the sun drum. It came from North America to Reykjavik and from there to Finland. An Iceland symphony. Art and love. At dawn, early short stories. An Iceland symphony is a musical composition of 21 sections involving theatrical elements, 